This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Um, what was debt forgiveness like in the ancient Near East? Why would people? Why on earth would a rational king or ruler or somebody who could hold debt over somebody's head, why would they ever forgive it? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. One is um, there may be in the broader ancient Near East a desire for people to not get trapped in cycles of debt bondage or that sort of thing. Um, and certainly there were limits on debt slavery in the ancient world outside of Israel. But a lot of the debt forgiveness that we hear about in the ancient Near East outside of Israel is basically royal enactments of debt forgiveness. So these are one-off, uh, unexpected proclamations of liberty that could apply to um, debt that you owe. It could, it could be a suspension of, or forgiveness of, 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 of interest. It could be a release of the collateral that had been seized. It could be that collateral could include the return of lands that had been taken. And so sometimes these, um, we think these kings would have made these pronouncements as political plays, right? Like mm-hmm. this would be a way to make their, they seem to have happened particularly when a king takes over, right? So uh, a new king's in town, want everybody to like him in the ancient Near East. Um, you know, they don't have like um, smooth running elections. It's not the normal way you transition power. So these can be bloody events, dangerous events. Yeah. Kings are trying to consolidate their rule. And so, Debt forgiveness is, is a popular idea among some people um, that you can win their favor. And also, it even seems to be the case that freeing up people for from debts over there might free them up to be indebted over here, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, um, and we know that this happened particularly with temples because sometimes we have uh, debt release edicts or, or pronouncements of liberty that freed people up to serve um, their God in the temple complex or in in a temple building project or in a a religious capital and that sort of thing. So those are some of the reasons that you might have debt forgiveness besides just kind of altruism in the ancient years. So just basically moving from one master to another uh, through the practice of debt forgiveness. Yes. And it is important to say that scholars point out that in the ancient East, one reason why you would give debt, why you lend in the first place would be to get the collateral, right? So a lot of these loans were what we would call predatory loans. Right. You, know, you think about like in our day, if you lend, when, you, when I borrow money to buy a house, the bank wins if I repay. They don't mm-hmm. want to foreclose the house under normal circumstances. A, a predatory title loan or predatory uh, car dealership, they only make money if they foreclose on that car, seize it, and resell it. So they want me to default. And it appears like an awful lot of the debt in the ancient world fell in that second category. Mm-hmm. And the reason why scholars say that is because apparently um, when a debt was repaid, they would burn the loan contracts. Mm-hmm. And, and we've dug up a ton of these. <laughs> that were never burnt. So Uh. apparently people lived and died in debt. Um, And so 
uh, lending could be super exploitative in the ancient world and often certainly was and created all kinds of problems. Um, so yeah, so it, we can probably assume it wasn't typically simply an altruistic or like kind motive that the new political ruler would, would maybe make a debt forgiveness edict. Yeah. I can imagine some people listening to that would say like, oh, well, check, 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 check. We've seen all of that recently, right? Loans being super exploitative, student loans maybe, right? Um, get them in mm-hmm. under their he- uh, over their head um, be- with the promise of future employment based on this training. You have a new king who comes in. Uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, uh, in many ways, he promised some debt forgiveness in the, the campaign. And now the, the kind yeah. of the, the political gun is being held to his head. Um, and so he's doing this to ingratiate himself for the, for the next, uh, reign as it were, uh, why, you know, if you're thinking about Israel's sense of debt forgiveness, what's not parallel here? What's different in significant ways? Well, yeah, I think there is a couple things that are going on in Israel that are different from that ancient or Eastern debt practice, uh, more broadly. Uh, one thing is, that mo- uh, in the law, in the Torah, debt forgiveness is taken out of the hands of the human king, because there is no king in the Torah, for the most part, um, and put in the hands of the divine king. And the divine king, Yahweh, uh, takes those one-off pronouncements and fixes them in time. So every seven years in the Sabbath year, debts are going to be forgiven, right? Every uh, can I stop years. you on this point and yeah, yeah, yeah. just contrast it a little bit? Like with the student debt forgiveness, which we're talking about here— yeah. Like never has there been a more palpable sense of millions of Americans kind of going like, will he, won't he, will he, won't he, will he, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, and, and so that would be the ancient world, right? And we know that people had this kind of like tension outside of Israel because we've actually dug up contracts where they say, I'm making you this loan. And if the king announces debt forgiveness, it's still in play. Right. Mm, <laughs> so we nice. know that like lenders were worried about this. Borrowers yeah. and lenders were thinking, Rightfully like, what's so. the, what, and so, right. And so what Israel does under Yahweh's leadership is take all that ambiguity out of the equation, which means that a king can't use it to get your support. And that what it actually does is it makes these one off debt forgiveness things into actual reform so that the existence of regular releases of debt. Uh, change the whole game. They change the whole structure. Right? This is most obvious in Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee, where the fact that land gets released in the 50th year um, change basically means that land can't be sold at all. It can just be mm-hmm. essentially rented. Mm-hmm. And so a huge contrast to what we're seeing here is that within in the U.S. is that um, the president's one-off debt forgiveness, what everyone agrees on is that this is not reform. This is not fixing the problems in higher education. It may be the right thing to do, um, but it doesn't solve the long-term problem. And that's problematic that it doesn't solve the long-term problem. And it's also problematic the uncertainty that's created. In fact, a lot of the most um, uh, sensible – there's a lot of unsensible criticisms of this Mm -hmm. student loan forgiveness program. But the most sensible criticisms are about the uncertainty that's created and actually the biblical – story cares about that uncertainty and says, well, when God's on the throne, these aren't cyclical. Uh, these aren't one-offs. These are cyclical. Now, I do want to say real quick, we actually do have a couple examples of one-off debt forgiveness in the Bible. Hmm. Jeremiah talks about one, and God is really excited about it. And actually, God 
um, describes the king's one-off forgiveness of debt as faithful to Torah, which is interesting because Torah it was cyclical in Jeremiah's day it was a one-off. But but Yahweh says, "Hey, you got the message from Torah, and you did it right this time. Good good on you. Good, well done." But then of course they mess it up. And then even more interestingly, in Nehemiah's day, there's a one-off uh, ending of debts because things have become so bad. It, the exploitation has been so high. Nehemiah says, hey, wipe it all out. But then five chapters later, you you see the people also instituting the cyclical pattern. Right. So it's not that the Bible is, is against these one-off kind of things. It just recognizes the problem. And so it has these structural built-in cycles that have a – longer term, more pervasive impact on the economy. It's like if you had a boss who got to set when the weekends happened, <clears throat> you know, whether it was going to be seven days you had to work or 10 days or whatever. And we take it out of his hands and say, no, no, every seven days, whether, what, no matter what the boss says, uh, we're taking a, yes. we're taking a break. Yeah. Um, yes. and so we're saying debt casually here as if this is dollars and cents in a bank somewhere in the ancient world. But what, what is most of this debt that's being referred to, uh, in the biblical text? Yeah. Well, if you think about like the passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, where it talks about forgiving debts every seven years, setting limits to debt servitude, and also outlawing interest, um, on this lending. Um, you know, even scholars of the ancient Near East who look deeply into these lending practices recognize that ancient Near Eastern lending practices are a maze. It's very confusing. So mm -hmm. we don't know with certainty, but it seems that most of these loans that the Bible's envisioning are uh, between uh, farmers, subsistence farmers, to help one farmer get through the season. So we know from Deuteronomy that money could be lent, but so could food and presumably seed. And so, you know, you can imagine, and farmers of the world, this is the problem, right? Debt is often predatory, and yet there are circumstances where lending is absolutely necessary, right? All over the world, farmers depend on short-term loans to help them make it through the lean season just before harvest, or to make sure that they have um, seed for the sowing and that sort of thing. And, and when so, you say make it through, you, you mean like have food to eat so that they can yeah, yeah, not be yeah, malnourished yeah, yeah. or starve. Yeah. We're not talking about yeah. like, so they'll have money in savings. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And most of these households, you know, um, are living year to year. They may have a little bit more than a year saved up if they're lucky, but you're talking about, um, and the Bible is very clear on this, that these are rain dependent farms, right? They depend on the right amount of rain at the right times. And scholars think those rains may have failed as many as three out of 10 seasons. So this is an extremely vulnerable community. They need this kind of, uh, when you've got a little extra, lend to me. And on a future occasion, when I've got a little more, I'll lend to you. Um, that's really important. And so interestingly, a lot of people go to Proverbs where it's like the borrowers and slaves lenders who don't borrow. Right. But actually, like in Deuteronomy, it's like you have to lend to your brother who's poor. It's right. a requirement yeah. because most of these loans are subsistence loans to help really poor people. Um, and to help them so not can't starve. Off of them. I mean, that's the... And to help them not starve, right? Yeah. To, I, not starve, but I would say it's it's not just not to starve because you have emergency food aid as well in Deuteronomy and the loans are different. I think it's, it's not starve, but it's also to achieve a, the sort of minimum viable life necessary to be a full participant in the community.
right? The Old Testament does not ser- does not celebrate, in my mind, like the grinding poverty of the poor, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. want people just to eat. It wants people to be fully vested participants in the community. And doing that requires being on a functioning farm. And so if the mm-hmm. farm needs a loan, you got to give it and you got to be willing to forgive it, right? Mm-hmm. And these are really important features of, of Israel's social safety net. Um, which is interesting because uh, there's a couple things that all this make me think when I think about the student loan forgiveness program. One is some percentage of these borrowers are the victims of direct exploitation of oppressive lending practices, right? So I worked in a very low-income community, lived in a very low-income community in the States for 12 years. And the number of people who were victims of predatory higher institutions of learning right? For-profit colleges. Um, And your readers can go, your listeners can go look at all the research on that. But the government has paid money to predators to exploit the poor in some of, with some of this lending. And people who've gone to those colleges, they have terrible uh, completion rates. Uh, They are ridiculously expensive and they often don't lead to legitimate higher wage jobs. And so what that means is some people uh, who've taken on this debt are victims of injustice that, that we as a society have been entangled with through right. the student loan program. Um, and those people do tend to – people who have been victimized by those predatory institutions do to, tend to be from among the poor. Yeah. And, um, and people who didn't I, grow up maybe in a household where both parents went to college – who might have seen through the trap and said, wait, that doesn't look like a legitimate institution. They didn't yes. know, right? And yes. presented as legitimate and, and they signed up and the government and authorized a loan to it, right? Yes. And there's yeah. horrifying stories about how these um, predatory institutions, you know, their salespeople are trained to play on your fears. I mean, they are manipulative. I have so many friends who, when they tried to go to community college or buy a house or whatever, what what was in front of them was this ridiculous debt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and the other thing to think about this, um, what, so I'm complicating the narrative because some people have said, well, look, a lot of this debt forgiveness is going to the most wealthy. Well, actually, as best I can tell, the wealthy hold more, the wealthier people who will benefit from this program hold more dollars, but there's an awful lot more lower income people right. who will be affected by this forgiveness. Right. And the whole idea of you, you're you better off because you went to college doesn't work for the many, many, many people who leave institutions of higher learning with no degree who do no better, right? So a lot of people have taken on debt and their lives, that debt has not allowed them to do any better. And so I think there really are matters of injustice related to kind of the Bible's don't exploit through lending teaching in Deuteronomy and Exodus. But the other thing about the other side of all this, another comparison that I see is with the year of Jubilee, um, where you do have debt forgiveness of a sort, which is interesting and related. But a closer sort of comparison for me is the underlying vision of the year of Jubilee. Because the year of Jubilee is everybody starts out with a farm, every household starts with a farm, and then if you lose the farm, you get it back in the year of Jubilee. And so moving beyond just a strict issue of debt forgiveness, the underlying commitment to the year of Jubilee is that every household has a place to stand 
and apportion to steward in the community. That everybody can contribute, that they can participate, that they can be fully vested members of the community um, by having access to the farm that makes uh, that sort of life possible. And so one thing that's amazing is the links that the Bible goes to to make sure that no family ever permanently loses access Mm -hmm. to that agricultural asset. So there there is no emergence of a multi-generationally poor uh, class in Israel. That's the whole goal in many ways, economically speaking, of the Jubilee. And what's interesting is, in some ways, education is sort of the vine, it's sort of the family farm in a knowledge economy. Mm-hmm. So part of this Jubilee conversation is not just, should we forgive this debt? Should we not forgive this debt? It's what's the underlying vision? It's of a society where everybody can contribute because they have a place to stand. If education is one of the primary ways that people attain a place to stand and a portion to steward in our economy, the Torah says we should be working really hard to make sure that people have safe, reliable access to that uh, asset. And so I think there's something deeply biblical about about the, the desire to say, how do we make education that allows people to contribute available in a broad way? Uh, even beyond just kind of like, is the debt forgiveness exactly like that debt forgiveness? Right. Um, so I, I want to repeat back to you some of the things you just said to make sure that yeah. uh, I that they weren't lost and that I understood you properly. Jubilee is every 49 years, uh, land is returned back uh, to families, clans, uh, which means nobody can ever take this away. This is Naboth's vineyard. This is part of what's going on there, right? That they that they, yes. they defraud him through murder and scheming of his own. And that's what Micah even calls up, you know, woe are the people who lay on their beds and defraud a man of his inheritance, right? Because yeah. you're yeah. – and what that does is it, it disallows this – cyclical poverty, which gets uh, handed down generation to generation. So your parents lose the family business, and then you just have to go and make it for yourself or wallow in poverty. Well, we're saying, no, the family business is always there. Yes. It It always comes back. It always comes back, right? And like people treat – that's exactly right. People treat the year of Jubilee and these debt forgiveness loans as like these impossible utopian things, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's not true. Don't buy that. If you look at these texts, you can tell they're trying to work out how this would actually work in real life. Mm-hmm. So the Jubilee is not some utopian deal. It's like, oh, well, what is, you know, you look at Leviticus 25, so you got to release the land. Well, what does that mean for land prices between Jubilee years? The text explicitly addresses that. Okay. People say, well, this is utopian. But no, we know from the archaeological and textual record that communities around Israel did Jubilee like things for a thousand years before. Israel comes on the scene and and for many, many centuries afterwards. So these texts really are concerned with that question of how does no family ever permanently lose the family business? And the Jubilee does not care how the family lost the family business in the first place, right? So a lot of the conversation around student loan forgiveness or debt forgiveness of any kind is about the worthiness of the borrower. Are these, do they do the right thing or do they wrong thing? Do they play by the rules or they break the rules? And there are some important questions there because mm-hmm. like in the biblical treatment of lending and borrowing, um, there are consequences. You could end up owing money for seven years. You could end up losing the family farm for a generation. It's not like just a free pass or something. You could end up but as somebody's slave are, or servant for seven years. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. You could end up working off your debt for seven years or your family's debt. So this is not like some kind of you know free lunch society in that sense, but there are limits. And when the Jubilee arrear arrives, your family gets back the family business however you lost it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a parallel with higher education because um, uh, one of the primary drivers of higher education attainment is if your parents are right. uh, have a have a, a, a post high school educational credential. So education is a multi generational heritage in a very deep way as a statistical matter. That doesn't mean that people don't break out and there aren't exceptions or whatever. But one of the biggest predictors of educational attainment is your parents' educational attainment. And so um, from a, like if you, on the jubilee analogy, if your parents didn't do well in you know they didn't. They didn't attain that. Um, at some point, that shouldn't affect you, right? Because everybody gets the asset back. And then on the other hand, from an American perspective, uh, who's who in the previous generations has attained higher education is enormously fraught with injustice, right? We know these statistics, right? Um, black veterans were denied the GI Bill within my grandparents' lifetime, right? There's been enormous disparity and ed- in the educational system in, in high school and college um, based on region and race and class and all sorts of things. So, so like there's been enormous inequity that's created a context in which it's difficult for some Americans to gain this vital asset for participation in community. And so um, however we sort it out, it's very biblical to be going, look, we want no family to be permanently barred from the means by which they can fully engage socially and economically. And for most people that may not be a four-year degree, but for most people that involves some education after high school. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is a really important conversation, I think fueled by the biblical imagination. That's uh, that's really helpful. I wonder, I can hear people saying, you know, I've heard people say things like, but it's not fair. You know, I had a, I have a daughter who just took out her first educational loan right after the cutoff for this, right? And so if she'd just gotten mm-hmm. it two months earlier, she would have been part of this forgiveness program, right? Um, so, well, this isn't fair. I paid, you know, I paid my uh, student loans. And I, I wonder, like, what do we do with this issue of fairness? Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say, again, um, I don't think it's not an issue. Right. Like, I do think that when we think about how should we think about economic matters, fairness is a legitimate concern. Right. So uh, in Israel, if you borrow money, you should try to pay it back. And there are consequences for not paying it back that could last for years. Um, Bear in mind, 50 year jubilee is a long time when household heads probably didn't make it past 40 all that often. Right. In a lot of cases. So. So it's not that, like, in, uh, to put it in a way that the economists say, like, incentives matter, fairness matters at some level. And so I think you see that in the biblical texts. Um, and that's one reason why I think uh, the, the, the Bible pairs those one-off moves with cyclical reform, like in the Nehemiah analogy. And... If this one-off release is not paired with some sort of long-term structural reform, it will tend to create new problems 
right? Um, and it will tend to be unfair in some ways, you know? Uh, and it can create new problems because it could it could create a situation where people are more likely to take on debt, assuming that it will be forgiven, which is the kind of situation that the Bible clearly is not excited about. You know? Right. Um, so I think the issue of fairness is, is real, but um, I think... Uh, The, the Old Testament tends to be way more concerned with creating a context in which everyone can flourish than it is about any one family's ability to make significant economic progress. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like some of the fairness stuff gets lost in the fact that uh, for some, for a lender, Laws like the Jubilee and Deuteronomy 15's debt forgiveness would be unpopular. And we know that they would have been unpopular because God has to say, do this uh, because you fear me. Do this and I will bless you. And if you don't lend your neighbor or release his debt, I will punish you. Right. And in Deuteronomy, it even says, uh, you should make loans even though they'll have to be forgiven. Don't have a wicked heart. And resist this law. So there's all sorts of evidence that this was an unpopular program for some people in Israel. And God's response is, I think, basically like, we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't have this emerging, multi-generational, struggling class. And and most things are going to take a backseat to that commitment. Hmm. So, it's, so the fairness questions, the individual fairness questions, in many ways, I think, take a backseat to the question of, is this creating a society that undermines multi-generational poverty? Is this creating a society in which more and more households have a place to stand in the community? Now, whether this student loan forgiveness package does that or right, not right, whether it is an empirical question, yeah, yeah. right? Right. But, but when it's individual fairness versus justice for the community, I think the Bible is basically like justice for the community is kind of the, the priority within which fairness to me has to kind of work itself out. Yeah, and I do. I mean, my thoughts do get dragged to other parts of Deuteronomy, you know, Deuteronomy 6 and 9, where, you know, and, and when you're drinking from wells that you didn't dig and yes. you're eating from trees yes. that you didn't plant and yes. you're living in houses that you didn't build, don't say in your heart, yes. it's because of my righteousness uh, right. that Yahweh's right. me. It's because of the wickedness of these people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And don't say to yourself um, in Deuteronomy 8, my might and the power of my hand got right. for me this wealth. Right. So whenever you hear the kind of line, I mean, on the one hand, like I, I had, somebody was saying, I'm sure this will land to a certain extent with you, Drew, as a, as a veteran. Hey, people went and put their lives at risk to avoid student debt in some right, cases. Right. Like that's, that's a serious thing to think about. Like I want to take that seriously. Um, but whenever we hear this kind of like, well, I worked my way up and look where I am and look where my, and the system did this for me. And, you know, just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, I think we should hear that Deuteronomy 8, be careful lest this wicked idea enter your heart. My my, my might and the power of my hand got for me this wealth. Yeah. Um, I think we have to be really careful of that, you know? And that's right in there, right and after the And I think we have to make sure, yeah, that's right. And I think we have to make sure that the policies that we're enacting actually do put the well-being of the poor 
uh, put the priority there. It's like from another perspective, there are real questions about whether this kind of um, debt forgiveness, to what extent it really does help the poorest members of our society. And that's a real question that needs to be debated. Um, Which neither you or nor I are capable of actually having no, any no. kind of empirical detailed debate about that. So. Right, right. Uh-huh. I, I think my the only thing I would say to that is is if you shift from you know the question of what's a just outcome look like to the question of how do we wisely make progress towards it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at a, a book that's really concerned about. Uh, wisdom, a book like Proverbs, um, a couple things that I notice is one is it, like the Torah, puts justice front and center. So if you look mm-hmm. at the beginning of Proverbs, what's the goal of this book? To learn righteousness, justice, and equity, right? right? So the wisdom that we're after is the kind of wisdom that allows us to move towards this r- righteous, just, equitable community. Which I just and want to point out that something that's obvious to biblical scholars is righteousness, justice, and even equity there are all, almost synonymous with one another. They, they can be used yes. interchangeably throughout the Bible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's right. So the righteousness that, that Proverbs is famous for isn't just like me personally right. um, treating my neighbor well and you know um, uh, practicing like good financial stewardship. It's like a whole life orientation towards God, neighbor, yep. community. Um, but the other thing I see when I look at Proverbs, for instance, is that wisdom is tricky. Mm. Like it takes work. It's hard. And so one thing that's embarrassing to me is when you see people, Christians especially stand up and say, um, well, this program is obviously bad because, and then they make three empirical claims, like, because, you know, it will, it will do this and this and this. And they actually aren't acknowledging that that's up for debate, right? That the result of these policies are massively debatable right. and they require all sorts of tools and skills to examine, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, Christians not only need to say what kind of society does God call us to pursue, but what sort of skills do we need to make wise progress towards those goals? Mm. Um because justice without wisdom is powerless. It, it can't accomplish its goals. Um, and I don't know about yeah. you, but from my perch, I'm not hearing anybody discuss that. Like That's not even where the discussion is at. The discussion is like, well, this is going to cause discord. This is going to perversely incentivize people. This isn't yes. fair and like this weird Egyptian scale version of fairness or uh, John Rawls yes. version of fairness, I think is probably what it yes. actually is. Um, they're not having this discussion of like, oh, wait, how how are we using economic policy to make sure that nobody is permanently disenfranchised, yes, generationally, yes. et cetera? Like that's not we're not even there. Yes. Even amongst Christians, I don't hear people saying this. Yes, and and, and that is um, there was a great um, article on the New York Times by a woman who's an economics professor at Harvard. And I found it really helpful because she said, I used to be against student loan forgiveness. Now I'm not. Here's the evidence empirical evidence that I was looking at. Here's how I get new empirical evidence. And even if you don't agree with her, you're able to go. um, She actually agrees on the end, which is a society that's more just uh, and equitable, particularly for um, the lower half of the socioeconomic pyramid. And she recognizes that policy is actually complicated. And so she's 
she's working out the complexities. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians, sometimes our problem is we're not even agreed on the goal. And, and so like the Torah is just like, man, if you thought that the goal was for every person to be free, to pursue their best life and for no one to impose on their resources. And so something like this is unfair because it might involve your resources going to someone else. The Torah just disagrees. Just it rejects all that. It's like, that's just yeah. not the game that we're playing. Um, but once you've agreed that w- the game that God's played us to is how do we pursue a society in which all can thrive? Um, how you get there is really complicated and you need that, that wisdom to figure out how to do that wisdom that comes from the word, but also wisdom that comes from experience and study and observation. That's yeah. thing. I think you, you said that the Torah would disagree. And I think a lot of people go fine. The, the Torah, I'm a Jesus follower. I don't do the Torah, but I think when you say the Torah, you actually mean what Jesus would agree with in, in, in the Torah. That he yes. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, Jesus picks up on the Jubilee debt forgiveness language of the Torah. And, um, he does something really strange with it, which is he suggests that it still applies in then some literally. So lend without expecting return. That is an intensification of that is a, a, a that is a spirit of the law and then some of Deuteronomy 15 or mm-hmm. Exodus 22 in the actual economic space where Jesus is, where debt is, again, an enormously exploitative uh, process. Um, But then he also identifies that theology of debt forgiveness as being deeply spiritual. And so the language of debt forgiveness gets brought into uh, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive Mm. us our debts Mm. as we forgive our debtors. And I'm not meaning to step on anyone's toes. (laughs) The traditions that say debts are the right one. It doesn't say sins. It doesn't say trespasses. There are words that mean those things. And the text makes it clear that Jesus' debt language includes them. But Jesus says debts, and he says debts for a reason, because he recognizes that these texts have... Uh, economic and spiritual and social and theological depth to them, mm-hmm. which is again, of course, a Torah insight. You declare the year of Jubilee on the day of atonement, mm-hmm. right? So, that, so that, I think, sorry, I, go ahead. I just think that being a Jesus person just makes this all even more complicated, right? Um, yeah, what were you going to say there, Drew? Well, I, I was, it, it, I mean, it makes me wonder. The only person I've heard, Rachel Ferguson, if you're listening, uh, who is a philosopher, colleague of mine, um, and she's the only one I saw on social media pointed out, like, you know, the fairness issue. Didn't Jesus give a parable about, you know, people showing up at different times in the day and getting paid different wages and yeah. someone yeah. complaining and Jesus basically telling them to shut up, right? Like, this isn't yeah. how it works. Yeah. Um, so even that, that acknowledgement that fairness is a concern, but that's not necessarily the logic of the rules we're playing by here. Right. And I do think it's important. Like, I do want to say a couple things. Um, these biblical texts are not blueprints. Mm -hmm. So I actually really appreciate scholar, the the long tradition of saying, um, does debt play a different role? in the ancient world than it does in our society 
And if so, does that mean that participating in certain forms of lending and debt and interest are not 100% outlawed? Because, you know, in, Bibli- in Christian history, some people have right. said no lending, which would basically mean every listener of this show is in trouble because right. no, all of no us interest, are interest right. from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, and I think the long reflection on that among theologians who've been trying to think the Bible's thoughts in a new place are really helpful. Um not quite uh, um, Mary Hirschfield's book, Aquinas in the Market on Catholic theology and um, economics is really helpful on some of this. There's lots of um, people who've, who've discussed these matters, but these, these, these neither old nor new Testament texts give us blueprints for exactly what we should do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to say that. Um, and, and I also do want to say that we should remember that, uh, when the Bible's the Bible's emphasis on the poor um, is addressing a class of people who hardly exist in the Western world in many ways. Like right. these are people who are facing star- starvation and destitution, um, and so without um, government uh, intervention are, at their disposal, yeah, yeah, and that's right, and without any safety net in some senses, yeah. and so. That you know, it, there are differences between saying, "Well, Deuteronomy says lend to your poor brother," and "Hey, somebody you know who's making seventy thousand dollars a year is going to get um, you know debt forgiveness or whatever for their student loan." Um, those aren't exactly parallel, but I think that that jubilee idea, which I think is is fundamental, and and the way Robbie Holt and I put it in one of our books is that like God's vision is of a potluck where everybody brings a plate to the party. And I I just think that when God creates human beings as his royal priestly sons and daughters and gives them a task of of representing him and mediating his power and presence in the world, um, he is is, uh, 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 creating a vision of a world, a a hope for where everyone is contributing to everyone else and receiving from everyone else. And that requires not just the bare modicum that you need for survival, it requires you to be able to participate in society. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the biblical texts are talking about poverty that that uh, in America, for instance, is, is very rare. And it's not rare in many parts of the world, right? I mean, there are people starving right, right now in the world. Um, as I think there's still a billion people living on less than a dollar a day. So that, that biblical level of poverty is out there. It's just not in our context. But I don't think that means that caring about the working poor in America is somehow not a concern because um, if you're working poor in America, you are having trouble being a fully vested member of society. Mm. And anyone who knows someone who is a part of the working poor, you know, you can say all day long, well, these people have air conditioning and they can go to the hospital. Blah, blah, blah. But if you are trapped in that cycle, you are not bringing your best plate to the plate and you're not bringing your best plate to the potluck for impartially because of economic reasons. And so the Jubilee idea that everybody has a vine and fig tree and sits under the vine and fig tree and none shall make them afraid, I think does give us marching orders to care about all sorts of people in American society um, for whom education would help them bring their best plate to the party, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me, but, you know, I'm weird, so... 
Well, the book you mentioned is called Practicing the King's Economy by uh, mm. my guest today. Robbie Holt and I. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Michael Rhodes, Robbie Holt, and Brian Fickert contributed as well, who wrote When Helping yes. Hurts. Um, fantastic book. And he's the an economist, by the way. <laughs> it's the most readable book on economics I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, and uh, will absolutely challenge you on every page, both personally with your finances, church finances, and uh, organizationally as well. So thank you for your wisdom on this very thorny issue uh, and helping us think through it and kind of leaving us with more questions than we have answers, which is probably right on this topic. So thank you very much, Michael. Thanks, Drew. Good to be with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.